Hello and welcome to the next MDD Claims Interview. In the hot seat today, we have Richard Folger from Aegis. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon, Barry. How are you? Well, the weather's starting to improve. My spirits are getting higher. Golf has started. What could be better? I know. I'm just worried that I'm going to have to do some work at some stage, but... Let's try and enjoy the good weather. Now, we're going to find out as we go through the interview, Richard, what life has been like for you in uh, the wonderful world of insurance and some of the things you get up to in your private life. Nothing too sordid. That would be good. So I'm going to start by asking you the question that I ask everybody. I think I've only so far found one person who deliberately intended to come into insurance. So I'm very excited to hear how you came to be insurance. Was it by design or not? So tell us, how did you come to be in the insurance industry? Well, I'm not going to disappoint you, Barry. It was not by design. Sorry. So it was not a career choice. I did the school bit. I did a degree in geography and didn't really know what I was going to do. My dad was a chartered accountant who happened to have a client who was one of the directors of Miller Insurance. And so I had three months wondering, trying different things, not really having any success. And I can't remember which way round it was, but he basically made an introduction. And I ended up in the Marine Claims Department of Miller Insurance in 1980. And nearly 41 years on, I'm still here and literally about 200 yards from the first office of Miller's where I sat. So that's the story. So not by design, by any means. Well, it is always interesting to hear how people get into it. And uh, as we both agree, you've got into it in no different way to, to most of us. I remember queuing up for days to get in to see you because Jansen Green was such a popular underwriter, or should I say unpopular underwriter, where we had to queue up for so long to see anyone. But those days are sort of long gone. Now you've been at Aegis for some considerable time. So tell us, what's it like working for Aegis? Well, actually, I've been here 20 years, believe it or not. Yeah, it seems incredible. It was quite a big step to come here. I left the mighty Jansen Green, and I think that's how you would describe them. And the ownership of Jansen Green had changed, so it, it was not what it was. But we still were very much the kingpin, and I had the opportunity to come to Aegis me and nine other underwriters. And it was a big, big decision. And I made the decision after a lot of consternation. I really wonder why it took any time at all, because actually, in retrospect, it was a complete no brainer. And we've been on the journey ever since. So we've gone from when we started, it was 25 million, it went up to 100 million. And this year, we've broken the billion dollar premium income barrier for the first time. And it's been an amazing journey of huge downs and actually as we are now massive ups and I've had the privilege of working with people that I work with at Janssen Green so the managing director here David Crum Johnson I've worked with since 1986 and others here as well for that length of time so that's coloured my experience the longevity of some of the relationships I've got here but it is a huge success story and it's a privilege to work here and I actually would not want to work anywhere else it's that good. That, that's great to hear. I, I need to ask you a little secret question, I guess, which is when you and your fellow friend at Janssen Green, Mark Cheeseman, were seeing claims people, did you ever have a bit of a bet to see how long you could make the queue? 
because, you know, sometimes there was like 20 or 30 people waiting to see you. And you must have said to yourself, let's see if we can make it 40 today. Well, especially if you were in the queue. Back. I mean, if you were in the queue, then that, that queue was not going to move. That is, it, but it was the time, wasn't it? I mean, it was crazy. If you think today what we do, I mean, it's not that long ago that those queues were like the norm everywhere you went. I did broking for six years before I went to Janssen. So I kind of did it at the junior level. And that was like hours and hours of waiting there and getting in, into offices like English and American, where there were so many files, you could hardly get in the office, let alone see the desks. My other colleague there would turn up at five to one with a queue of 20 people. And at one o'clock, they go off to lunch, if anyone remembers that. But that was the time, wasn't it? Unacceptable, yeah. but sort of acceptable then. And it was four files at a time, wasn't it, as well? So, you know, you weren't that bad. I mean, I can think of places where I used to go where I would literally carry a pile of files that was almost above my head out into the marketplace. And I'd struggle all the way over to wherever I was going. And I'd get there and there'd be a notice, we're closed today. And then I'd have to struggle all the way back again. And the thing is, you know, at least today with modern communication, People will know whether you're open or shut or whatever. But in those days, it was, you took you, you, you know. I mean, you if you just, if you then play it out to where we are today with the skills that we all learnt of face-to-face, yeah. -face, quick decision-making, we, like you and I, same generation have learnt that, but the younger people today have not had that experience. So I'm sure we're going to talk about that at some stage because that's one of the big issues of the day, I think, especially with the world we've had for the last 18 months is what does that look like? What is the optimal way of handling, say, a complex claim, not a, an attritional claim that can actually almost be automated, but the claims that this market is known for, what's the best way? Well, it's certainly not the likes of you queuing for four hours. It's certainly not that, but it's not all email exchanges. That's a topic of huge consternation, discussion, concern, encouragement. I don't know what you'd call it, but they were fun days, I have to say, because it was all people, hours and hours of it, just dealing with claims face to face. But you learn a lot in that. That was the bedrock, really, of my career is what I learned then. Yeah, I'm really with you. And in a strange way, I can thank you because through those cues, I met so many people and got to talk about so many different things, formed so many friendships. We were all in the trenches together trying to get in to see you guys and uh, formed some great bonds. Let, let's move on. So you've had a great career in the London market, Richard. But tell me, what have you enjoyed most? Thank you for saying that. I take that as a compliment, Mr. Jones. That's an interesting question. I think, for me, it's almost being part of the community, I think. I mean, it's not insurance particularly. I don't think insurance in itself, to me, is that interesting. I've, I've loved some of the technical, some of the places I've been, some of the wacky sites I've been to, some of the countries I've been to. But actually, what, what is it? I think it's the community. It's the society. It's the group of people. I'm looking out at Lloyd's now from this meeting room right into the main entrance. And it kind of makes you realise... I mean, it's dead at the moment. There's just a few people around. But when it comes back, which it surely will, and how it was, what is it's part of a world here, isn't it, where mm. it all ticks and it all links up and you meet people in the street and you deal with people day on day. I think 
that's what I've enjoyed the most and all the different bits of that, how that works and operates. It's a really interesting touching on this because there is a view out there in society that insurance claims is they're dirty words. But the reality is, as you know, and I know, in the world of commercial claims that we've lived in for the last 30 or 40 years, there are so many great people trying to do the right thing by the commercial community that we, we serve. And that's always filled me full of pride. And when I hear that somebody's had a bad claims experience, it's always a bit painful, but I always reflect on the fact that I know the vast, vast majority of claims are handled extremely professionally by people who do care about what they're doing for clients. I'm sure you'd agree with me on that. Well, I think that is just increasing day by day. I mean, if you compare like you've just done to 20, 30 years ago, I think it was very mixed. I think there were some people around that just didn't really didn't care and didn't mind if a file sat there for months and nothing happened on it. You just wouldn't get that now. That would not be allowed and it just wouldn't be considered as good service. And I'm proud to be part of a market that does take service seriously. Yeah, we fail sometimes, things get missed, mistakes get made. Well, that's life, isn't it? But generally, there is such an ethos, I think, of service, of trying to get claims paid quickly, of realising the part we play in the commercial world. So I guess if we did go back 30 or 40 years, you and I could could talk about the fact that things used to get done by telex, probably the main means, and they would probably take three or four weeks to get a response that nobody had a calculator. You know, we used something that looked a bit like an abacus and it had a handle that you cranked and we just did not have any of the refinements that we have today. So I guess my question is, we have seen a lot of changes in the marketplace. What do you think resonates with you as being the most positive in all this time? Well, I think it has to be ECF going on what you've said. I was thinking the Lloyd's claim scheme was probably a revolutionary step for this market way back in the late 80s. Before that point, it was everyone sees everything. But I think ECF was revolutionary, really. If you think how long it's taken the underwriters to get to a similar place, and they've been forced to do it over the last 18 months, we as a claims community were there, we have a long ago, is it 15 years, I'm guessing? And we've done it, and it works. And it, yeah, it has some issues, it's, it needs managing, the systems are hugely outdated, but that was probably, I think, the most positive thing for this market, I would think. Mm. I, I agree with you. I suppose from a personal point of view, I think there's too many people who get carried away with the speed of settlement from the date a claim is agreed to when it's actually paid, whether it's two days or three days, because I'm not sure clients care about that quite so much, whether it's one day or two day. I think what's far more important and what has really changed is they want to feel that their claim was handled fairly and promptly under the policy. And I think the way clients are communicated with today is far, far better. I think clients themselves are better educated anyway. But I think if you're a client and you feel that you're being dealt with fairly and promptly, that goes a long, long way to a much better claims experience because that isn't really the way things went when you and I first started in the industry. In our claims commitment, we use the expression find ways to pay claims rather than find ways to deny them. We, we still have a reputation as an industry that's finding ways to not pay. 
which I think will probably live with us forever. Who knows? But I, I agree with you completely. And I think the electronic way of doing things assists that, really. I mean, yes, you're right, Barry. Two to three days isn't a problem. Two days to three weeks is a problem. And we're still dogged by that. And I, I think that's the biggest challenge we have is just getting money paid quickly in a world where if I wanted to, I could pay you money in a flash while we're doing this interview. Well, I can't pay an insurance claim as quick as that in this market. So what's the difference? I agree. And I'd just like to point out to all our listeners that I'm not being paid to interview Richard. The questions are going to be way, way too difficult for him. So let's move on a little bit. You know, in the last few years, you featured prominently in organising market events. Can you tell us about why you became involved in doing these and what you've been trying to achieve? That's a very good question. I told you there weren't going to be any easy questions. I'll tell you what, two weeks before you do one of these, you wonder why on earth you did it in the first place. So the, the history is quite interesting. So I got involved in the early days of the Lillehammer Conference, for, which was great, and was on that organising committee. We then did some conferences here at, at Aegis to mimic some of the ones the Mutual did in the US, and we did a few of those across Europe. Then the business here changed, and we, we started to write a lot of power business. So I started the London Power Forum with really Nick Barber of AIG, which was, I think, 16 years ago now. Oh, wow. Why did we do it? We did it because we believed in this market. We did it because we wanted there to be a community. We did it because we wanted to bring technical training to people. That's what we were about. And that's what we're still about. And that conference then morphed into the Onshore Energy Conference, which we have today. And we've done, what, 16 of those in London and we've done five in Dubai. It's a lot of work, Mm -hmm. but... For some strange reason, I enjoy it and I seem to be able to do it. And we seem to be able to get speakers and connections and we offer a a non-aligned conference. So we're not a conference organizing company. We're not commercially minded like that. We're trying to serve the market in a way that brings an improvement in the market, whichever market we're operating in. Well, I've been to a number of these. I think they're absolutely superb. I love the fact that you can get as technical as you want there's a lot of issues that we face as an industry that get discussed and it feels as though you absolutely come out of it having learned something and credit to you because as you say i think there's quite a big difference between a company that organizes these things and expects to get paid a lot of money to produce these things and the market themselves producing them and yes they do need to be paid for but i really feel there's great value in to you and the rest of the guys do in delivering this so full credit to you um, and now I'm just going to get a bit personal with you for a second and talk about what it's like to be a leader and what you enjoy most about being a leader so tell me what's your personal reflection that's quite an interesting question really you kind of don't feel like a leader sometimes I'm not that sort of person really but when I look at what I do then I am I'm a perfectionist so I, I like things to be done well And I do like to achieve things. I like to see things happen. I like to have had an influence over things. So working here for 40 years, I feel very privileged that I can bring some value and influence in not just what people know, but in their experience of professional life and whatever degree that comes to someone's personal life, because the two overlap. I mean, I'm more of a leader today than I probably have been because this business here has grown. So we're leading a much bigger claims team. 
I mean, if you think about leadership of a claim, it's bringing a answer to something. That's that's a slightly different concept, and I really enjoy that. I really enjoy the the whole dynamic of bringing people together, making something work, having a client that's okay at the end of the day. They might not be ecstatic, but they they're okay with the result. So that's always been a very rewarding experience, I would say. So there's d- different aspects of leadership. Yeah, I'm not a business leader per se. I'm not that, and I wouldn't pretend to be that. But I think leading people and bringing people with you is something I can do. Cool. So I'm going to jump ahead a question because one of my questions a little bit further down the line was, what makes a great claims handler? And I'm going to go there now and ask you that question. So what makes a great claim? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? I mean, there are some key points. I, I think you've got to feel it a bit. I think that's what this market's about. I think you've got to want to provide a good service. You've got to be driven by the desire to do a good job, realizing that insurance is selling a service. It's the payment of money if something should happen. That's the service. So you've got to have that in your bones. Otherwise, it's just routine, especially on these bigger claims. Otherwise, it doesn't drive you forwards and you're not going to treat anyone fairly if you don't have that. But you need some knowledge. You need to be able to listen. And I think you need to be wise enough to know other people know more about things. And you bring all that together to make good decisions. If you listen to what Ben Bolton talks about in Grace Church, he uses the word empathy quite a lot, which is a very touchy-feely sort of thing. But that's grown in importance. And actually, you can dismiss it because you think, oh, that's too touchy-feely. But actually, it is really real. It's that empathy with somebody, some company, some commercial entity that's bought a product to protect them at the time of need. And at that moment, I need to step up. And we're on this journey together. Of course, there are some claims that aren't covered. Of course, that's the case. But the majority are. And I think a good claims handler will be driven by that. And from that comes all the other things you learn, the knowledge that you learn. And that's what I see around me from the people I work with and the other people in the market. So if you were giving advice to that next generation of claims brokers, what advice would you give them? A broker? Yeah, broker. I would say to a broker, I would think, well, to be blunt, what's the future of broking? I think there is a future, but it's changing and I think it looks different. This market works the best when there's a good broker in it. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Yeah. When you don't have a broker in the process, it does not work very well. We'd like to think it would, but it doesn't. So I, I would encourage people to do broking. I think clearly they're our customer. They're the important entity to us. That's who I view as who I'm serving. When I talk about handling claims, it's the broker we're dealing with. But the broker's got to get clear what they're doing, what they're offering. We need to be clear what role they play. But good, well-trained, educated brokers that know their business will no doubt have a future and are able to communicate with the insurance side as well. Because that's lacking a bit or it's not the focus of agendas, but that needs to come back. That definitely is required going forwards, I would say. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I'd also advise brokers that the bit that really can help is if you're a broker handling oil claims or you're handling coffee claims or you're handling construction claims, really get to know the industry. So go beyond the claim and get to understand the industry because it will help you and it helps understand the scene that you're operating in and it will help you 
when you're acting on behalf of your client. If you can talk and understand the same language as your client and convey that to the insurer, my experience is it makes a big difference. And, and also it demonstrates, you know, you're, you're, you're prepared to go the extra mile for the client. And if they feel that you've made that effort to understand the world they live in and go past just the words on a piece of paper in that policy, I think clients really react incredibly well to that. And I think the market reacts well to that as well. And and a lot of that is true for the insurance side as well, because it seems to me a lot of disputes arise because people don't understand basic facts of what they're dealing with in the industry. Yeah. And I think there is an enhanced need for people to have that knowledge across all the different disciplines that we face here. And there's no excuse, is there? Because that information is readily available in a way that we didn't have when we were young. I mean, we didn't have it, did we? It was only reading books. That was the only place you were going to get it at the beginning, believe it or not. Now look what you can get. We're really hot on learning and development. I mean, it's really a big issue, big budget. It's right out there. I must look on YouTube, Richard, and see if there's any YouTube videos on how to broker claim. I, I hadn't thought about that until we started talking, but if there isn't one, I'm going to create a YouTube video. That'd be fun. Using all my decades of experience and having to deal with very tricky people like you. Right, let's move on. Let's talk about Aegis for a second and the future. I'm sure there's more energy left in the veins, uh, so to speak. So what plans are there for the future of Aegis and, and how might those relate to claims? Well, we're growing. Clearly, we're dependent on the market. That's the truth. I mean, we've got a marketplace that is what it is at the moment. It's a very hard market. That's clearly had some consequences on growth and the claims environment that we have. We are supporting our mutual, who's our capital provider, who are very happy with what we're doing. We've had a number of years of profit, which has gone down very well with the capital provider. And that is the aim. That's the sole reason for our existence, to provide a profit to the capital provider. We're in a very exciting phase here in the claims team. We're growing, we're recruiting, we're creating a new succession plan and creating a structure that allows people to develop that we haven't had before. And that's happened all during the lockdown period. So lockdown here has actually been a very positive experience with all the restrictions it brings, all the change it's brought. I've seen such great strides with people personally, just taking on new responsibility, just moving forwards. And we've matched that as a company with with changes in structure, opportunities, promotions. This is a very positive company at the moment. We're now 190 people, just moved offices. So it's all very good, I have to say. But we're not a company that takes that for granted because you can't. Because as soon as you do that, that's the recipe for it going horribly wrong. We're always looking forward. We are excellent at at scanning the horizon and seeing what's coming. Okay, well... Again, it's great to hear things are so positive. I'm dragging you towards the most exciting part of this interview where we're going to get really personal with you. But before we do, tell me about influences on your career. Who who have been the big influences? Well, I think the people here I've worked with for a long time, no doubt about it. You can't work with someone for 30, nearly 40 years and not have an influence on you. The influence being things like trust, that if you have, if you work together that long, you really have trusted each other. Otherwise, you'd be off somewhere else. So that group we've got here has had a massive influence. Clearly, the, the people I work with at Janssen Green had a massive influence. But there are others. There's, there's plenty of lawyers and adjusters out there 
that I work with that may well be listening to this that I won't try and list, but they're the people I've learned from. They're the people that have been kind enough to explain things, work through things together, visits together, trips together. I mean, there's a whole group of people out there that you draw on. But now what's interesting is the younger people coming up. I mean, they are hugely influencing me and how I see things. There's masses of fabulous young people coming up through the ranks that are keen to develop in their way and in their generation. And I look at that and I think, great, what can I learn from them? So I've been very blessed by meeting a lot of people that have had a lot of influence on what I do. Good response. Very good response. Right. Tell me about high points and low points in your career. I I don't know whether you've had many or any in particular. Is there anything you can tell us about? Well, some of the high points were some of the claims we dealt with at Janssen Green. I mean, I started and then within a few months, we got Piper Alpha. So as much as the others took the lead on it, that was a hugely influential experience. We led almost everything. Mm. And that was just one of a number of very large claims. So that's a high point, not only because of the way it was handled, but also just from what I learned from it. Certainly the whole experience here has been a high point, but that's over many, many years. Low point, I'm not sure about low point. It's people you work with that decide to go elsewhere that kind of disappointed in that. People do what they need to do as we all have to, but that I've always found hard because I like working with people, but I'm not sure I've had a low, low point. I've always worked with companies that have been strong. I've never had to work with a company that struggled or anything like that. So I've been very fortunate. I've never been anywhere near those experiences that come from struggling companies. So low points is hard to find one in particular. I think my first big platform claim was the Ocean Ranger. Can you remember that one? Listeners can look that one up on the internet. That was a very big event. So what are your aspirations for the future, Richard? Well, I might simply put, I want to leave what I do here in as fit a state as possible. That's quite simply what I'm about at the moment. I you invest a lot of time, don't you, in, in the work that you do. And I'm sure almost everybody listening to this would do the same. And if you can have an influence in how you leave it, then that's a good thing. And I'm enjoying that at the moment. That's a great experience. Cool. Well... That's great to hear. I'm sure you've built a really great legacy for the business going forward, but I sort of sneakingly think you're going to be around for a little while longer. So let's see. Okay, Richard, let's now move on to the quick fire round. And when I say quick fire round, don't fall into the trap that many of my respondents have fallen into, which is they want to give me a long and lengthy response for why they picked a particular word. So let's see what you come up with. So rugby or football? Rugby. TV or radio? TV. Thank God you've got a TV. John Sargent, see, there are people that have TVs out there. BBC or ITV? BBC, definitely. Fantastic. A man after me. Work or holidays? Holidays. Hey, you are so right. And I can say right because it must be right because everybody I've asked this question of always says holidays. So I'm... You don't have one without the other, do you? So that's a difficult question. I was talking to the uh, chairman of Aegis earlier and he said he would be listening out to that answer. So he's now got it. And maybe your stay at Aegis isn't going to be as long as I thought. So let's move on. Let's see if you can get this one right. Lloyd's or companies? I might have to think about this for a couple of hours. Lloyd's. Okay. What a surprise. We've had some shocking responses to the next question recently. 1980s or 2020s? I know you were around in the 1980s. I think the 1980s. 
Good man. So for all the lack of process and efficiency, we still like the good old days. Okay, right. I was thinking about it personally. You could have that as a whole interview as to what that means to you. Yeah, I'm not a good old days person. I'm not. I'm very much today. I never say the good old days. I never think like that. I try and draw from the positives of the past, but I would never want to live in the past because the world moves on. Maybe I need to give another answer, which is 2030s. And you can just say the future will be better than the past, I'm sure. Who knows? We'll see. But I'm, in, I'm still going to accept the first answer, which was 1980s. And finally, Harley or Porsche? Well, I've never owned either. Probably don't really want to own either. But I'd probably say Porsche because I would never, ever go near a motorbike, ever. I would never drive one or be a passenger on one. So it would have to be a Porsche. So you've never been on a motorcycle? No, never. I'm sending Martin Clark round to see you and he will take you for a trip on his Harley. And I promise you, you'll be safe, at least until you get out of your driveway. So Richard, finally, I always ask this question. So here we go. The audience has got to know you, I think, pretty well through our conversations. But tell us, if you'd not got into insurance, knowing what you know now, what career would you have liked to have had? Well, my other love of life really apart from my dearly beloved wife who I've been married to 40 years next year so has put up with me that length of time are mountain so I, I tried to explore it in those months before I ended up in insurance but I just didn't have the nous or the knowledge to do anything with it but it's been a source of excitement all sorts of things to me is what I've been able to do climbing all sorts of places so I think it would be something in that world now especially now with taking people into the mountains, people that don't see them normally, who can't normally get there, and just the joy that it brings in the adventure it brings and the freedom it brings. So it would be something around that now, I would think. be a very so, different world from insurance. So for the uneducated, what Richard is telling us is he wished he'd been a Sherpa. Sherpa <laughs> Bolger. Fantastic. Richard, it's been fantastic talking to you. I have thoroughly enjoyed today's discussion. I'd like to wish you every continued success at Aegis. It's been great knowing you over the last 30 or 40 years, and I'm looking forward to whatever the future brings. So thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.